Welcome to the Human Climate Podcast. Carol Smaldino is a practicing psychotherapist and author of The Human Climate, Facing the Divisions Inside Us and Between Us. Our tendency is to demonize or to worship blindly, to be arrogant and are covered by shame and doubt. Her restless spirit has provoked a quest for guests who might help her and us to question our assumptions. Carol invites you into the conversations where she herself has wound up taking her own dives into inconvenient territories. I hope you'll join me for a series of unexpected duets. Hello, I'm Carol Smaldino, and welcome to The Human Climate. My guest today is Tim Wise, and I would say he's a prominent anti-racist. He's an author and speaker, and I would add, add provocateur. I don't think you go to audiences just to comfort anybody. I think you kind of provoke the out of people. And uh, I guess I have to say you provoked me because I, I changed what I wanted to talk about with you like a hundred times. Yeah. So, and then I thought, well, Kind of the purpose of this, one of the purposes of this podcast is to help me and anyone listening or watching to um, question our assumptions. Sure. And so maybe that's the idea that um, you can add to me and perhaps I could even add to you, but we'll see. Yeah, great. Sounds um, good. Sounds good. I read your book for... I, no, I, I read your book, White Like Me, let me be clear, and marked it up intensively. Yeah. And some of the things that struck me actually really surprised me because I was very struck by what you said about Jewish immigrants and losing their stories and how your grandfather, that his father, hadn't really shared stories. And it was a, it had a big impact on me because I had never wanted to go to Russia because I thought, well, ancestors fled from there. Right. But, but the issue is they didn't only flee, they lived there. I mean, Fiddler on the Roof was there. So I didn't get the stories either. And part of what I miss, I think, as a white person is that alien, it, what I feel, have felt, is that alienation from the past. And as you say, people were primed to become white and to assimilate. And I think that happened with Italians. Yeah. <clears throat> do, you, do you know the story of Columbus Day, just as an aside? Uh, why it was founded, why it was, I know it was, it was an attempt to ostensibly to honor Italian-Americans, right? Um, not very good way to do that. Sacco and Vanzetti would have been a better choice, but you know. Well, you know, there's an article, I don't want to get it wrong, the New York Times or the New Yorker, how Italians became white. Yeah. And, it, and the story goes that Italian immigrants lived with black people, worked with black people, integrated and were treated like black people. Yeah. So one year, I believe it was 1911, 11 Italians were lynched. In New Orleans. Yeah. So the, the Italian government got involved and got very angry. And I think there was 
almost a military conflict and the president at the time was going to, for one year, have a Columbus Day. But of right. course, as we know, it could be ended in many states now, but it went on and on. And so it became that Italians could be proud of discovering America, which had been already discovered right. and lived in. But so, so I was really struck by that. And I was struck by your, I felt empathy with white privilege in the sense that it causes so much pressure that the idea is that you're supposed to be special and you're supposed to achieve special things. And if you don't, you're a terrible failure. And so, and also I was very struck by the emptiness of white culture, that this absence of tradition in a sense, in a very deep way, um, I think makes people crave that and envy as you've pointed out, the black and brown cultures, which have, in a sense, a lot of life to them. Right. Um, so I want to make sure I don't forget to talk about Fort Collins, where I'm living now. Mm. Um, because it's very, very white. And it <laughs> it's so white that I asked my dentist, I I said something to my dentist and she said that when she was an athlete at CSU, which is Colorado State University, they had a really tough time um, recruiting black players because black players didn't want, athletes didn't want to come into a town that was so white, Yeah, you know? But so I really want to get to the, uh, what's the deal with it being so white and what's the deal with our role or the role of people here in keeping it that way? Cause it's a nice town. I mean, sure. you know, so otherwise, but okay. So let me start like really the conversation with you about your article on implicit bias. Okay. Um, that was in medium. I don't know if it was somewhere else, but it was, it was very interesting. And you talk about how the emphasis on unconscious bias is kind of a distraction from the fact that racism is really so structural and systemic that it needs to be changed at that level. And I guess my thought was, well, why can't you do both? Right. And then my thought was, it's, this is not going to surprise you. I went back to Carl Jung and I started to read some of his uh, book, which is a little like a Bible for me. I have, I, I need to read it 20 more times to completely understand it. And I, I thought this morning, someone has to do a simplified version of this because it's so dense, but it's so smart. And I guess you know, his thing is that we hide from evil in ourselves. We hide from whatever scares us. Mm. So it doesn't mean that evil is the only thing. We hide from tenderness if we are macho. We hide from, uh, we hide from the idea that we're imperfect. And I know imperfection has been a psychological buzzword, 
But when I talk about imperfection, I talk about the raw, messy, yucky, kind of gross stuff that brings about, I think, a lot of shame. And when you have religions and schools and parents teaching us that we're good and giving us fairy tales that always have happy endings. And I think it's hard for people to really admit any part in ugly stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think if we don't teach people, we don't teach kids, we don't teach ourselves that it's okay to be terribly imperfect, that it's really okay. I just see anti-racism for many white people landing in a very surfacey way. Sure. Well, let me let me back up a couple of steps because I think I can connect some of what you set up there, including the piece about sort of the emptiness of whiteness and the substitution of actual ethnic and cultural history with this sort of, you know, aggrandized uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, accumulated whiteness as a substitute for that. I can link that to the point about um, implicit bias versus systemic bias, you know, and I can do that with a somewhat Jungian analysis in a way, you know, when, when these European peoples, Jews, Italians, Irish folk, wherever they were from, came to this so-called new world, um, they were running from some things. And some of those things were very real and visceral. Uh, some of it was running to something, greater opportunity, et cetera. But upon arrival, right, the, the price of the ticket, as James Baldwin would say and did say, was the cost of one's actual cultural integrity and history. You had to put aside your customs, your language, your traditions, so as to assimilate to the norm of Americanness, but really what that meant for Europeans was to become white. And so in a way, hiding from the self of who you really were, you were a, a Russian Jew, or in the case of my you know, family, they were, they were from Minsk, which was you know, modern day Belarus, but at that time, part of the Russian empire. Um, and that's who they were. And, and Irish folk were from Ireland. That's who they were. They had been obviously oppressed by the Anglo elite for centuries, looked at as you know, virtually enslavable on the part of the Anglo elite. But upon coming to this country, now they could look around and they saw the power structure and they realized, you know, we're either going to get with these people who have always hated us and killed us, or we're going to get with the people they're hating and killing now. You know, what do you think they're going to do, right? They're going to, to opt, as, as most people do in that situation, to try to ingratiate to the power structure. And so you see the Irish and also some German immigrants, but especially the Irish who burned down the orphanage on, I think it was 42nd Street in New York City, Black Orphanage during the draft riots in 1862 as a way to protest saying, we're not going to go fight in this war because this is a war to liberate those people. And we're not with those people. We're with you. It was a way to sort of prove whiteness. Um, and, and so whether we're talking about the Irish experience, the Italian experience, the Jewish experience, there was a real sense of suppressing who one was um, out of a desire for A, survival, but B, being able to move up and through this new system, which had meant nothing to you in the old world. My great grandfather had no idea what it was to be white. He had no idea what it was to be any of that. He was a Russian Jew. He spoke Yiddish. Um, but upon coming here, it became very apparent, I think, to him and to most immigrants that you had to suppress that true self 
in order to become something new. And of course, there's a huge psychological cost that comes with that. Um, and I think we see that, you know, I, I went many years ago, uh, I was, I was uh, out and doing this sort of person on the street interviews for this documentary that I don't think it was ever released, but they had me go out and I went to South Boston uh, and I, which at that time was still heavily Irish. It's now very gentrified and changed culturally, but at that time it was very much, Southie was very much an Irish American community. I went to Bensonhurst, which is uh, uh, historically an Italian community in New York and Brooklyn. Um, and, um, and in both of those places, they had me stop and just ask people. I was a lot braver then. I wouldn't do this now. But, but, but in those days, I just had me stop and ask people, you know, what does it mean to be white? And they would say, you know, both places, they would say, well, I'm not white. And I'm like, well, what are you? You know, and they'd say, well, I'm Irish or I'm Italian. I'm like, all right, well, tell me, what does it mean to be Irish or what does it mean to be Italian then? And they would say, well, you know. Like I said this in South Boston, I had people say to me, well, you know, being Irish, it's about food and family and faith. Oh, okay. And then in Bensonhurst, I would ask the same question. I said, well, what does it mean to be Italian? And they would say, well, you know, it means food and family and faith. And I thought, well, that's fascinating because that's what the Irish folks told me in South Boston. So are y'all Irish or are you Italian? And then, by the way, my Jewish people would tell you the same thing, right? And so, like, we're all Jews, we're all Irish, we're all Italian, but we're not, right? So there has to be more to it. Like, your Irish ancestor who came here would have had a better answer, right? Your Italian ancestor would have had a better answer. My great grandfather who came and we had been a member of the Bund and, you know, was a labor socialist, he would have had a better answer than that. Um, but here we are multiple generations later and that's what's left. And the reason I stress that is because I think one of the mistakes that we in, and I put myself in this, we in the anti-racist movement community um, have made is that when we have talked about white privilege, we have presented it not on purpose, but this has been the effect. It has landed as sort of a lit litany of all the advantages and all the good stuff that comes from being white, which is very real. I mean, in relative terms, there's absolutely no argument about it, but we haven't paid enough attention to the sort of collateral damage that comes with it and the downside of it. And if we don't do that, not only are we being dishonest, but we're also giving white people a really good reason to hold on to it, right? Like if I just give you all the goodies that come from this identity and I never present you with the complications, the logical thing for you to do, best case scenario is you're gonna go, oh, that's really terrible, hmm, but I don't wanna give up these perks, right? And so then nothing changes. So it's important. And the thing about the implicit bias piece is that when we focus, as I think we do in our anti-racism, same thing with the white privilege analysis, which is so sometimes individualistic. You have privilege. You should be clear on your privilege. You should check this list to see all these privileges that you have. Okay, same thing with implicit bias. You have bias. You have internalized these things. Well, of course you have. Just like you internalize shopping and materialism, right? They tell you when you go to the grocery, don't go hungry because you're going to buy stuff you don't need, but we all do it because we've ingrained these things. You know, we, we're conditioned to be consumers. We're conditioned to have these thoughts about race and gender, sexuality, religion. So to say that you have an internalized bias is like saying you're an air breather. It's a sort of meaningless truism. The question is, where did those thoughts come from? Did they come from you being a damaged bad person? Or did they come from a system and a structure that taught you these things over and over? And in the piece, my argument is, look, not only is the problem 
systemic and needs to be dealt with. But even the attitudinal stuff, even the personal bias comes from a system. And we have a system structured on an ideology that says wherever you end up in life is about you. Rugged individualism, meritocracy. So if you made it, it's because you worked harder. If you didn't, it's your own fault. Well, if you if you believe that, and that's that's Genesis 1-1 in the Bible of Americanism, right? That's that's the sort of secular gospel. If you believe that and you look around and see inequality, and the system says, if you're on top, you deserve it. If you're on bottom, you deserve that, then of course you internalize racist thoughts and sexist thoughts and classist thoughts. There's nothing remotely surprising about it. The question is, do we get at that by training you out of it? Or do we get at that by changing the narrative of the large society? And to me, that's that's the bigger, it's harder, right, than doing the training, but it's the bigger piece. Okay. And the Jungian part? Well, just the running from the self stuff, the the, the idea that, that we have this self that we run from because we're afraid. And so the thing that the immigrant feared was um, confronting their marginality, both historically where they had come from and in the potential of marginalization in the new world. And so one of the ways you protect yourself uh, would be to hide from the person that you are. So I'm going to try to lose the accent. I'm not going to speak Yiddish. I'm not going to speak Gaelic. I'm not going to speak Italian. I'll do it in the home, you know, sort of privately, but I'm not going to bring it out here in the street. Uh, once I once I leave the shtetl, once I leave the community, you know, if I'm on the Lower East Side, maybe it's safe. But when my great grandfather comes to Chattanooga, right, he's got to play a very different game. And and running from the self in that way is obviously an incredibly destructive um, psychological thing. But it's something that, as you said, that's what we do. Uh, and and we do it to push aside pain. We do it to push aside fear of of exposure of people seeing our true self. Um, and, uh, and, and in a way, what it does is it creates this, this cycle within us, um, where we don't actually get to be who we are and to, and to, and to be comfortable in our own skin. And so we substitute a different skin. And in this case, and, and you see it today, by the way, you see it with not just people of European descent. You see folks in the Latino Latina community who are also caught between this rock and a hard place between whiteness which has this allure, right? This pull of, well, if you're light-skinned enough and if you maybe don't have a surname that's that's too Spanish and if you don't, you know, you don't speak with too much of an accent, then maybe you can be part of this too. And you see, you know, that that, that is part of it. Running from the self is something that isn't just a, a quote-unquote white thing. I mean, it's a human thing uh, and we all do it in somewhat different ways. You know, that makes increasing sense to me because I've... Well, I think I've blamed myself for feeling alienated mm-hmm. from sort of a larger whiteness, let's say, or even when I go to, let's say, a synagogue because somebody showed me a synagogue in Fort Collins and it feels very empty to me. Just it feels very far from going to the delicatessen on the corner. And it obviously I got pastrami. And, you know, now, even the other day, it's like, I'm not kosher, I'm not religious, but I ordered a sandwich with pastrami and sauerkraut and Swiss cheese. And it was like, so bizarre to me. Yeah. How am I, how do you do this? So I think, you know, the book helped me in a way feel more like normal or let's say, okay, not normal. I have a magnet that says normal people worry me. Mm -hmm. So 
but you know, just, um, I don't know, validated or it was like seeing in a sense, uh, I am not your Negro, mm -hmm. uh, Baldwin. And it's like, when he talks about the sadness, the paleness of white culture, it's like, it felt so real to me and sad. So I think you kind of talk about there, you know, white privilege as really very sad. I mean, I see people in, in my office or my Zoom in psychotherapy who have that sense of failure if they're not functioning at the level they think they should be. So it's all about production and it's not about the real self. Right. Right. Uh, that, that point is, is critical. And, and um, the setup, the expectationalism is the word I use for it. Right. That, that comes with, it's not just whiteness. It's especially white men. You know, I talk in the book um, uh, about my dad and, you know, my father, um, Jewish man, white man, also a stand-up comic and an actor. Now this is in the 1960s and, and early 1970s. And Yet he never he was a working comic. He made a living, but he never sort of made it right. Never sort of never made it big, never made it really successful. And I will tell you, um, and there are people who will push back on this within sort of the recovery community because he was also an addict and an alcoholic. But I happen to believe that the expectationalism of whiteness, of being a man and being a Jew in comedy in the 60s, because I mean, I don't want to like play to the stereotype, but we sort of ran that yeah, like that was sort of like it was like a world that was pretty Jewish and and he didn't break in the way that he thought he would. So you have all these expectations um, that are on you on multiple levels and you don't quite get there. And I believe when you have that level of expectation and the and the gap between aspiration and achievement is really huge and unexpected, you don't know where to put the pain. Right. Um, and so he did with with drugs and with alcohol and rage and all kinds of self-destructive tendencies. We see it today with the opioid crisis. Who were the people who were dying of these deaths of despair? They call them right disproportionately half a million excess deaths from 1999 to 2013. And it, they've continued. But there were half a million in that 14 year period among whom disproportionately white working class, middle aged, non-college educated folks. Why is it because they are objectively the most oppressed people in America? No, I mean, they're hurting for sure, but any indicator you look at, black folks are struggling more, brown folks struggling more, you know, so they're not the objectively worst off, but they are the ones who were told to expect life on a seven or better if they worked hard, right? Whereas black and brown folk have always known they could work hard every day and never get above a five. Like that, they've understood that's the way it works in this country, but for white men in particular, even working class. The, the promise was, if you play by the rules, if you work hard, keep your nose clean, you'll make it, your kids will be better off than you, their kids will be even better off. There's this notion of upward mobility. And when that gets interrupted, the privilege of having believed it and the privilege of it historically being true now becomes a dagger pointed at your own heart because now you have no, no way to figure it out. You have to blame yourself because the voice in the back of your head says, 
you should be able to pay for your kid's college. You should have enough money set aside for your healthcare needs. You should be better off than this. And now you're 55 and you're staring down retirement in a decade or whatever, and you got nothing saved and you just got laid off and ain't nobody hiring 55 year olds. Right. And so now you, you, you don't know what to do with it. And, and so it's, it's, it's like, if you think about the great depression, we all have heard the stories about when the market crashed in 29, people, I remember the first stories I ever heard about the depression were about people throwing themselves off the tops of buildings in New York. Well, who did that? Do you think poor people did? Poor people didn't, didn't, didn't say, oh my God, my stock portfolio is crashed. Let me go up to the tallest building in Manhattan and throw myself from it, right? They didn't have a stock portfolio. They were on the soup line on Thursday. And then on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and it was the rich, it was rich folks who couldn't handle the thought of being broke. So sometimes privilege works out really well, economic, class, gender, a combination of those. It's all good for 364 days out of the year. But if day 365 is the day you lose your job, the day your marriage falls apart, the day that something goes horribly wrong in your life, and you aren't prepared for setback because you never had to be, in the same way, you're the one who's going to actually suffer the greatest psychic sort of break. And I think that is a, a thing that um, therapists, um, and I've talked about it with my own uh, uh, therapist, but I think psychologists and, and therapists should be trained and psychiatrists should be trained to really think about some of the, the, the costs of, I think we're now starting to have such folks train and learn about the cost of, of to people who are marginalized, like that's increasing. You'll hear that more in people's training. And but but there's this other piece. It's not just the folks that are that are being marginalized. It's the people that generally aren't. And then everything goes to hell one day and you don't know how to help those people because they were never understood as being at risk. And they actually are just in a different way. Yeah, um, I have a couple of thoughts. What I ha- I I just want to ask you about what you think the impact of Obama was on us all. But I'm thinking about some of the message also to black and brown people that maybe, you know, this is America What you know, the kids are killed in Connecticut and he's crying and he said, well, yeah, yeah, this is, yeah, it is who we are. And so, I wonder what, you know, there's a certain sector of Black people who have made it really big sure. and who have given the message. If you, this is America, I am American, I am Black, but I am American. And if you do, uh, if you work hard, you'll, we can all make it. Mm-hmm. And Obama was, for some people, um, I think naively confirmation of that. Now I would say that it was more confirming of that for white people than most black folks. I think most black folks still had a relatively um, jaundiced view of, of that promise, but you certainly heard it. I mean, I remember Will Smith, uh, for instance, the actor, you know, right after uh, Obama was elected, he, he made some comment to the effect of, you know, if Obama can become president, don't tell me that you can't get a job at the mall at the department store. Well, the yeah. irony is, it's actually harder to get the job at the department store in some weird ways. Um, that may sound odd, but but you know, to be president, 
um, you don't have to, you know, you're, you're not appealing to that one person who might be a bigot and not want to hire you, might be a racist. You're appealing to millions. And all you got to do is convince, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. I certainly couldn't do it. And Obama's a political genius. But but convincing the majority to vote for you allows you to, to appeal to people who maybe can, can trump, no pun intended, the racism of others. When you're applying for a normal job, you're just face to face with that one person in HR or that one person who's interviewing you. And if that person has some biases, you're sort of screwed. At least when you're running for office, you're appealing to millions of people or thousands at least in, in a local election. And so you got a shot. So there was a naivete in what Will Smith said. Um, but I think that that really the problem was that Obama was confirming of that myth for a lot of white Americans. I think white folks, and you heard it even d- during the run up to the election, there were, I remember a piece in, in the, I think it was the Washington Post, it might've been the Wall Street Journal, but um, I reference it in my book Between Barack and a Hard Place, so it's in there somewhere, but there's a there was a quote, and this was from like December of 07. So this is this is before Obama had really become the front runner, but there was sort of this groundswell of support for him among some young folks, and there was somebody quoted, some supporter of Obama's, I think in Iowa somewhere, who was quoted as saying, well, you know what I like about him is that uh, he doesn't have all the baggage of the civil rights movement. And then someone else chimed in about, you know, they just confirmed that, you know, anybody can make it. And and the problem, first of all, the idea that you'd think the civil rights movement was baggage is concerning, especially when you're a Democratic voter. Ostensibly, you'd think you wouldn't say that. But also the idea that it confirms anybody can make it is sort of indicative of this 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 idea that if we can just get ahead of state who's black, um, then there are no limits. Well, you know, when Benazir Bhutto became the head of state in Pakistan, which happened twice, of course, she was later assassinated. So it doesn't necessarily indicate her popularity, but she did become head of state twice. I don't think anyone would have said, well, patriarchy has clearly been uprooted in Karachi. You know, I don't think they would have said there was no sexism in England because of Margaret Thatcher or, you know, that there's no sexism in Germany because of Angela Merkel or there's no sexism in the Philippines or Israel or India or all of these other places that have had women as heads of state. But somehow that's what it meant here. So we're always looking for these confirmations of the ideology And that lets you know how powerful the ideology is and how that ideology helps keep in place a lot of the systems and the structures that need to be uprooted. And when you say that, I mean, you know, you can imagine the pushback. It's like going to church. Not that I know a lot about that. Well, I do. I'm from the South. So I've been in a lot of churches, even though they weren't my own, obviously. Um, Being in church and like right after the pastor or the priest or whatever finishes the sermon, it's like standing up in the third row of pews and saying to him, well, that was beautiful, but, you know, there's no God. So why are we really here in the first place? Like it doesn't go over well. And it's the same thing with that. When you question the fundamental core ideology of Americanism, the thing that that we built the society on, it's hard. That lets you know that it's important. Right. That's the part where the where the pain is coming from. And that's why it has to be addressed, but it's not, it's not an easy slog. Right. So I'm just going to go back to Young. I don't know, I was thinking about how, how victimized um, a lot of people feel. And I think that it's, I don't know, maybe it's unconsciously, you know, from the old country, there was, um, 
a certain brutality that hasn't really been talked about. I mean, has kind of, people have tried to forget it. So maybe it's inside them as the shadow. But I think what happens is that also in the, the ideology, let's call it the ideology of what is popular Christianity and popular Judaism uh, for, for two, that, you know, it's important to be good. It's important to follow the Ten Commandments and it's important to do this. And I haven't found a religion that does not preach goodness. Now, sure. let's say Buddhism preaches not having an ego, but I'm, I can't get there because it doesn't resonate for me. So for now, you know, I think that what happens is even in the schools, a two-year-old is written up because he scratches another kid. I mean, so there's this fear of having a kid who's going to be victimized. And there's this fear of having a kid, I think a greater fear of having a kid who's a bully because we don't teach kids that we're all good and bad. And, you know, there was an article in the times the other day about um, defending inappropriate, inappropriate movies. And the issue was uh, the author, her last name is gross was talking about during the pandemic, seeing the Adams family and a couple of other films and having her seven-year-old make interesting comments. And she quoted Bruno Bettelheim, whose book I've also marked up a lot, Uses of Enchantment, where he talks about how kids, you know, have this ambivalence and uncertainty inside themselves. And when they see it resonate from fairy tales, they can identify because at a certain age, you know, they can't really handle ambivalence. So they have the good guy, the bad guy, but then it kind of, can come together, but when we sterilize the entertainment of kids and make it all happy and everybody's nice to their neighbor. And so I think, I, you know, I was, I was thinking and I, I want kids about racism and, you know, I see a lot of people who have signed Black Lives Matter and who have coffee cups that say Black Lives Matter, but I, I think it's not really so popular to teach A, ourselves, but then our kids about systemic racism, that it exists today. There's a lot that's unfair. And this is what your family is trying to do about it. I mean, that kind of came to me as I was reading your book and thinking about what you write, um, that I think we don't teach kids, we don't teach ourselves about emotions, okay? We don't teach our kids about having mixed feelings that it's all okay and that we can feel like maleficent or whatever. I mean, uh, we can feel like that towards a younger sibling or towards an older sibling or towards anybody. And so that's part of us. So if that's part of us, then it's not so traumatic to learn right. we're part of racism. Well, so it, yeah. And, and, you know, the thing, it reminds me of, uh, again, going back to the psychoanalytic framework too, um, what happens when you're not allowed to feel certain things or to process certain emotions? Um, you know, there's a, a great series of books and I cannot remember, I've got them on the shelf back here somewhere, but there's a series of books by a, a, 
a, a psychologist about all the recent presidents called whoever it is on the couch. So there was there was Bush on the couch. I know who you're talking. I mean, yeah. I know I have a couple. Yeah. And and one of the things that struck me, I haven't read the Trump one yet, although I'm sure that will be fascinating. But I remember the, the Bush one, which was about George W. Bush. Um, one of the first stories in that book, right, was about and I didn't know this story. Some people might have. But I guess when George W. Bush was was pretty young, um, George H.W. and Barbara had they, they had a child that died, a daughter that died very young in infancy. And um, and I guess they just buried her in a family plot, I guess, in Connecticut and didn't even tell George W. that she had died. It was almost like, well, we're not going to we don't do mourning in this family. We're just not going to do it. And I think he found out like after the funeral that his sister had died. And I thought to myself, what, you know, like, like think about the, a, the message you're sending about feelings and about pain and about how you're supposed to process it. But also then when you see years later, right, it made me not, not, not sympathetic or even empathic to W per se, but it made me understand something about him when, during the war, when they were talking about civilian deaths and they were talking about the loss of life and, and he just sort of laughed it off. It was like this nervous laughter and you're thinking, oh, but you don't. And then I read the book and I realized you don't know how to process pain. You don't know how to deal with trauma. And then of course, you know, uh, Mary Trump, I guess the, who's the niece of, of Donald Trump, right. Has written about this and talked about this, that her uncle was not allowed in that family to, to ever to cry, to express pain, to express fear, to express insecurity, even though he was, he was, had a brutal father and, and, a, and, a, and a mother who apparently hated him. I mean, they both, both the parents, apparently from all the reports just thought he was a sociopath. And, and, and so there was this, you, you're not allowed to feel, you're not allowed to love, you're not allowed to express fear. We're not going to express these things toward you. So you become human, but not human in the sense that you're not able to fully embrace your full humanity. Well, when kids grow up in a society of, with profound injustice, not just racial, but other types as well, and they don't learn, A, they don't learn about it, or, or they do, but only on a very surface level. Uh, or when you try to teach them about it, parents show up at the school board meeting to threaten your life because you're indoctrinating their children, or they learn about it, but don't learn that there are ways to respond to it. That, that yes, this is pain and it is real, but there are also some constructive ways to respond. Then they're going to shut down and they are going to naturally learn to turn away from the ugliness, to turn away from the pain, which means they can never solve it. Now, the good thing about kids is that when you, and, and now my, my wife and I, we have two daughters, now they're 20 and 18. And what I learned, and, and, I, and I didn't know this because no one had written anything to tell me this was true, but I was just going on a hunch based on the way my mom raised me, that kids were actually really resilient and could handle what you threw at them. And if they couldn't, they'd let you know, and you could try again later. You know, they'd sort of let you know, like, I'm not following it. It's over my head. So I was talking to my kids about race at an age appropriate level, of course, when they were five or four or six or seven or whatever it was. And what I found fascinating was the first time that I ever tried to talk about it with other people's children. It's one thing to talk about it with your own because you've got 18 years to get it right, roughly. But with someone else's kids, you're worried. And I, I've been speaking at UNC Chapel Hill on like a Wednesday 
And on Thursday morning, I had to be back at home in my kids' preschool class with a bunch of five-year-olds to talk to them about racism. The one at UNC Chapel Hill did not bother me. You put me in front of 500,000 adults and there's no fear. You put me in front of 15 children and it's a little different. So I was nervous. I didn't sleep all night. I got there. And what I did was I just asked them questions. You know, you can't at that age when they're real young, you can't just hit them over the head with a bunch of facts and information. They're just not ready for that. But you can ask them questions. You can elicit from them some of their own observations. And so I started to do that. And uh, as we were going through, and I I made a very brief mention, I said, you know, here we are. I live in Nashville. I said, we're here in Nashville. And I don't know if you know this, but this is a place where uh, not that long ago, there was a huge movement of young people, high school and college age young people to, uh, to to make this country a better place. So I gave a very brief description of the sit-in movement and the civil rights struggle and that, you know, Black folks were being treated horribly because of the color of their skin, not able to shop, go to the movies, eat in this restaurant, whatever the case was, able to vote or work in these places. And, and, and none of these kids, with the exception of mine, had probably heard this before. And they were horrified but not horrified in a way that made them feel guilty and ashamed. Most of these kids were white kids. It's not like they, they felt, oh my gosh, we're terrible people. No, they didn't go to that place. That's what conservatives think they'll do. If you talk to them about racism, they'll, they'll hate themselves for being white. No. But then when I asked them, I said, now you tell me, if you saw someone being treated badly because of the color of their skin, what would you do? That was my question to them. And these little five-year-olds right? Who, who some would have us believe, oh, it's too, it's too advanced for them. They can't handle these concepts. It's, you know, it's too troubling for them. It's too deep. No, all their little hands go up and they have these great answers. Like, well, I would tell them to stop. I would go find an adult and, you know, whatever, like the things that they would tell you about any other bully in the playground or whatever. Right. And they were animated to do the right thing because at that age, that's what kids have this innate sense of justice. They only lose that when we wring it out of them like water through a sponge, right? Because, oh, we don't have time for justice. You got to pay the bills. You got to, you know, you got to do whatever you got to do to get on top. These kids don't know about that. That's why I think so many people are upset when we try to talk to young people about racism in schools. That's why they're attacking critical race theory, not because they're afraid it's going to make white kids feel bad, but because they're afraid it's going to make white kids want to act in solidarity with black and brown kids. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I just want to go back to, to Mary Trump. Yeah. Because um, I read her book and uh, I, I thought was that Donald Trump, in a sense, had a choice, a difficult choice. He saw his brother in particular being humiliated by his father. Right. And he could either identify with the victim and try to help him, but he was, I think, also feeling in some ways a victim because he he was sent to boarding school. He was seen as impossible to deal with. So he was rejected. And now he saw his father completely demolish his brother. So he made a choice. Uh, unconsciously, obviously, and he became his father. He tried to become his father. So as his father, he did what is one of the scariest things we can do when we're not helped to deal with emotions. He detached. So 
he detached. And I think a lot of, I'm going to say a lot of white people do that. And so when you detach, and this is really important, it's hard to really care. And it's hard to care then about climate change. We kind of get used to it. Oh, yeah, this is really radically harmful. Well, okay, we'll adapt. And and if we're white, well, if if we're privileged, we can adapt, okay? We can go get a house that's not by the sea. We can, like, but we detach from injustice. We detach from military torture. So what? We detach from anybody that we dehumanize and um, we lose our vulnerability. So it's hard to really identify with people who are really vulnerable. And then it's hard to identify ourselves and our own vulnerabilities to racism. So can I bring you back to Fort Collins, Colorado? So I do encounter um, people who I think sometimes along with me have no idea, you know, just are, it's weird. It's weird to be in an all white place. Now, I mean, I did grow up. I think I've grown up only after that, but I did live in a, a very segregated Jewish community where I actually, this is at 13, Tim, I thought that Jews were the majority of the world. Whoa. <laughs> talk about, talk about lack of information. Right. So, so it's, it's, it's abnormal for me to be in a community with so many churches. Yeah. But every once in a while I say, you know, there are no black people here. I mean, you know, 10, 20, I mean, 100, but seriously. Mostly, and mostly connected to the college, uh, those who are there. I'm sure, but, um, or disconnected from the race factor. I, I don't I don't really know, you know. Um, uh, so, I don't know, what can you do, what can you say to help here? Because I feel like, I'm living with people who really don't know that they're racist. Right. Well, and I think um, the reason that people in those kinds of spaces don't think of themselves, not only as being racist personally, but sort of being wrapped up in racism is, again, because like so many others, including people that live in much more diverse places, they have been led to believe and have internalized the belief that racism is about being a bad, hateful, bigoted person. So if they're not that, and I think most people are not that, then they figure, well, I'm not racist. And they sort of think about the space that they inhabit as this coincidence. Like, you know, I remember um, the first time I went to the eastern side of Oregon for a speech. I'd spoken on the on the west side in Portland and those areas many, many times. The first time I went east, I remember someone there in one of the towns I was speaking at saying something to the effect of and, and they and they said it with no sense of misgiving or irony or or certainly no hostility they said well you know I, we don't have a lot of racism we, here we, we just don't have you know we don't have a lot of black people 
And it was, and it was, it was sort of like, you know, the lack of awareness that maybe the reason you don't have a lot of black people is because of racism, which in Oregon's case, I mean, there was literally an ordinance that was passed to essentially tell blacks to leave the territory uh, on pain of, of, of potential death if they did not. So there's a reason, you know, why certain spaces look the way that they look. I wrote a piece about that on Medium also a few months ago, where I went through all these areas that we now, you look at Maine, Maine used to be far more diverse than it is now. Parts of Vermont used to be more diverse that, than now. I remember going to um, Pella, Iowa, which is a, a small town in Iowa where Central College is. Cute little college, cute little town, very Dutch. There's like a windmill in the middle of town or something. A lot of Dutch writing on the, you know, uh, uh, language on the walls. Um, lovely town. Uh, but what's interesting is when you look at the yearbooks from the 70s, I'm talking like 1975, six, seven, eight, you will see three or four, five times more black people at Central College in the mid 70s than you see today. And you start to wonder, well, how now, wait a minute, because our, 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 our story that we tell ourselves is never ending progress. Right. So we start off like this, but it's always getting better, always getting better. Eventually, it'll be great. But what you see is that history is actually two steps forward, three steps back, five steps forward, eight steps back. And we don't teach it like that. And as a result, people look around and go, well, you know, what can you do? Well, clearly someone did something in the 70s to make Pella blacker than it is now and more diverse than it is now. There got to be ways to create those multicultural. Is it going to be harder some places than others? Yes. And I've always grown up and incredibly and been around very diverse communities, but but none of it is coincidence. You know, none of it is, is something that just happens. It is the result of history. It is the result of the narrative that we tell and don't tell. And it's the result of how deliberate we are in trying to create something different. And if you get comfortable with a place like Fort Collins, as many people who've been there a long time, I'm sure are, just like people, Eastern Oregon, all these lovely places. I mean, I've been to CSU to speak, lovely place. But when you when you get used to that and you think to yourself, well, this is a really nice place, Any anything that threatens to change it demographically, culturally, um, almost inevitably seems like a threat, right? Because if you think it's good now and you don't know what the difference might look like, even if you're not overtly racist, even if you're not overtly whatever, you still are thinking to yourself, ooh, but I don't know about change, right? There's that fear. I, I don't know what that'll look like. I know what this looks like. This looks like something I'm used to. This is what I'm comfortable with. And this other thing, you know, especially if it's those people who weren't here already, well, why weren't they here already? And again, the notion of meritocracy says if they were good people like the people here, they would already be here. And so if they're not here, it must be because they're not as hardworking. They're not as good. They're not our kind of people. That almost like becomes a default way of thinking and it makes it very hard to change at the same time if i were black would i want to be the pioneer in a place you know do i want to do i want to be one of do i want to be number 11 in the place that has 10 i don't know like i i'm not sure i want to nor do i think i should have to carry that burden so it's like on the one hand white folks need more diversity but black and brown folk also need to be safe so i you know it's like a well that's yeah. true that's yeah. true i mean I, you know I share the alienation that, you know, you speak about from the immigrants. And so, uh, you know, I what I hear is that this is the best place to live. It's number four in the national whatever. And I think, why? Like, what does that mean? And maybe part of what it means is that it's homogeneous. 
So let me ask you about something else that is coming up to me, which is about reparations. I, you know, I, I haven't read you on that. And, but recently, because I have been reading you, you know, this stuff, I was thinking about the people who don't believe in reparations and who consider themselves good citizens. But I was wondering if they don't believe in reparations because they believe that black people uh, are irresponsible criminals, I don't know, something that won't use the money well. Yeah. I think there, there are multiple things, I think, that motivate opposition. Some people, it's that, the idea that, well, they'll just squander the money anyway. Other people, it's this sense of just not deserving it because, after all, they, quote unquote, were not the ones enslaved and we were not the ones who enslaved them. So there's this distributive justice piece or whatever. Um, I have written about, I've talked about it more than I've written about it. I, I had a piece in really what was probably the first contemporary collection on reparations in the last you know 30 or 40 years back in 03 a book called should america pay which is actually on my shelf right over here somewhere um it was edited by uh my friend ray winbush who is a professor at morgan state oh yeah is that your book uh, i have a piece in it I, ha I have it's an edited volume it's a collection of essays that ray winbush who at that time was here at fisk but now he's at morgan state in baltimore uh put together and um in there i sort of talk about why there are a lot of pieces that talk about sort of the financial end of it and the benefits that it would bring obviously to the black community and the moral philosophical case for it um, my piece is actually trying to make the argument that reparations would actually be positive for white folks that it would actually be a way to begin to sort of repurchase that which we lost by 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 accepting the bargain of whiteness which is you know the cost of our soul and our humanity and all of these things and um i i look i think that without question from a moral and philosophical place injury has to be compensated and and it has to be compensated for the health of the whole not just for the injured but for the health of the whole um you know amends have to be made now what that looks like is the debate that we have to have on a public policy level and a lot of different people have different views on that you know sandy darity and others who have done a lot of work on reparations at the policy level might have one version of what it looks like ray winbush who edited that volume might have a different version some people talk about it as actual cash payouts other people talk about it as collective investment aka like the marshall plan after world war ii that kind of thing I, i'm i'm for that whole debate I, you know i think that discussion about how is what we need to be having. But the idea that we should be debating if seems to me morally repugnant because the idea that we ought not do anything, you know, right now I saw a piece yesterday, for example, is in the Wall Street Journal that the Biden administration, and by the way, I don't oppose this idea, I just want to use it as a contrast, is talking about paying pretty substantial amounts of money, maybe upwards of a million dollars per family for those families that were separated at the border under the Trump administration for that horrific policy of, of family separation. And that should be compensated. But there's a sick irony in the idea that, well, because we're getting to that in a, in a, in a quick way, like within a couple of years, okay, there's like no moral statute of limitations. We can recompense the victims, but we're not going to recompense 
the descendants of victims just because why? Because we stalled for 150 or 200 years and just like stood in the corner dribbling the ball until the clock ran out. So we're going to get rewarded for delaying. You know, if we can pay compensation to these folks, and I know people would say, well, they're the actual victims, not four or five generations removed. But that, that's the point. The only reason you didn't compensate the direct victims is because you didn't want to and you had the power not to. And 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 you shouldn't be rewarded for using that power to delay justice. And so let's debate how, and we can have great discussions about that. One, one thing that I think we'd have to acknowledge, and some supporters of reparations don't understand this either, is that the idea that you're gonna ever be able to have reparations that would be based solely on race itself, it's not going to happen because the courts will disallow it. There will, there's no way that you can have a race-based scheme specifically targeted to all quote unquote black people because of the history of enslavement, segregation, et cetera. You would have to specifically say direct descendants of enslaved persons. Now that will also be black people, right? But because there would be some black people who would not qualify for that more recent immigrants, those who could not trace their, their, their history directly to enslaved persons, you would avoid the court stepping in, at least theoretically, you never know what they'll do, but it would make it harder for the court to say, oh, no, you can't do that because that's racial favoritism. And therefore, we're going to strike it down. We know that a court that won't even allow affirmative action to go forward in a direct way is not going to allow race-based reparations. But if it's actually based on direct lineage, See, now you're talking about actual traceable harm that you can actually demonstrate, and that might be the way to go. But again, that's the debate we ought to be having as a society rather than the one we're having, which is, oh, they don't really deserve it. You know, well, clearly, morally, under just about any definition of justice, it is deserved, it seems to me. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about you speaking increasingly to young people. And I'm thinking that I think there is in a lot of us, you know, who are curious, want to know what's inside us and what happened. I don't know. I think more white people like need to be reached who can be reached um, and who deep down really want to know more because, you know, we have Texas, we have angry people who come out even on Long Island or, you know, scream at people. We have people with guns, you know, flaring. And as Jung said, even though he said it in the fifties, it's not maybe that people have gotten worse. It's that we have social media, so we know everything quickly. And we have all these weapons like nuclear, not invented weapons, you know, but, and we have climate change coming. So we have all this, anxiety that's yeah that's already there so well our technology has evolved quicker than our self-awareness and our technology has evolved quicker than our brains have evolved and so now we're, we're operating with brains that aren't that different from hundreds of years ago uh, really not that different from thousands of years ago with technology that cannot be imagined even 20 years ago. And that doesn't make for, you know, that means that the means to do great harm and, and lots of good are right there at our disposal. But because our psychology, because we, because most people haven't 
learn psychology, their own or others. Most people haven't had the therapy that I'm convinced all of us need. Um, and, and as a result, when you're not, when you don't have that level of self-awareness or you even scoff at it, which our culture does um, more than more than just about any culture, it seems to me, we scoff at the idea of psychology and therapy and self-awareness. And particularly, I think men do this and, and um, you know, because you're just not supposed to, any, any, any demonstration of emotional um, uh, need or, or, or lacking or, or, um, uh, unhealth, not even unhealth, just any kind of emotional thing is, is seen as a sign of weakness. And as a result, we don't deal with as going back to what we started off with this notion of, of us all being good and bad, having the capacity for good and evil. And, and if we don't understand that, if we don't recognize that, if instead we say, no, no, there's good people here and I'm going to be one of them or I am one of them. And then there's evil people over here. And all we got to do is like keep them at arm's length or maybe we lock them up. Right. We'll imprison them or we'll kick them out of the country or we'll keep them on that side of town or whatever. Um, as long as we do that, then we don't see the capacity for each of us to become that person on January 6th, maybe not literally so, because some of us wouldn't do that, but there's other things we would do. Like the line that keeps us from really hurting one another is a pretty thin line. And, and only understanding that can allow us to empathize, not just with, with people on the other side of the aisle, but even with that other side of ourselves. And if I can't empathize with that other side of myself, if I can't, if I can't get in touch with that person, right, then, then I'm really dangerous. And I think that's where we are, is that um, we've got 21st century tools with, you know, 14th century brains, uh, or maybe worse, I'm probably pushing the evolutionary timeline up quite a bit there, maybe it's quite a bit before that. You know, I, I'm gonna say that we should end this conversation here. And because what you just said is uh, a summation of What's passionate for me, and I, th I think, I want to, I want to work with you on it. You know, I really, I feel that what you said is, is what I'm trying to say, and it's like, okay, it's not just Carl Jung. I mean, it's just a thing. It's a thing that if we, if we don't get to know our own capacity for good and evil, we won't be aware. And if we're not aware, we're just going to fake it. You know, if we fake being nice and we fake not being racist, it's, it's going to be. So listen, I can't thank you enough. for Oh, saying thank you. Thank you. This was great. I hope we can do this again. And, uh, you know, hopefully one day we can do this in person. If I, if, if I travel to Fort Collins, I will definitely let you know and we can. Uh, um, I can travel too. Okay, very good. Very good. Well, let's do that. I, I, I've had a great time. It's great to finally get to talk with you and uh, we'll do it again. Okay, Tim, really, let's keep in touch. That sounds great, Carol. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you.